Praise the Lord. I'm going to ask you to open your Bible to 1 John. And we will be concluding chapter 1 of 1 John um, today. And I'm going to read 1 John beginning from verse 1 through verse 10. The Word of God reads, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld, with our hand, and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us, and, our, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that your joy may be made complete. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We've been going through this epistle of First John, and as we approach the end of chapter 1, we see from what we have learned already that John immediately moves right at the very beginning. He moves to define the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, the gospel was coming under attack from Gnosticism. And John repeats to the churches the things what he had seen, the things that he had heard, the things that he had handled and had proclaimed. And, it is, and he proclaims this boldly to the church. Remember, John is writing to the churches in Asia. This is an epistle that's going out to the churches in Asia. John is at the end of his life. This is at the end of the first century. He's the last remaining apostle of God that is alive. He has watched and perhaps has heard of all the others who had uh, eventually uh, become martyrs for the faith. For the faith. And what we see here um, is God. Is, is John had declared several things. Number one, he had declared that God is light, that God is that divine illumination, that there is no darkness in him, that God is pure, there's no impurity in God. And we saw that there was a linkage in the Scriptures between light and life, and that light is in Christ, that life is in Christ, and it is to all who come to him in repentance and faith. We've also seen that if what we profess does not match up with how we live, then John says we lie. And one of the primary reasons he was saying this is because Gnosticism taught that, listen, if you have this mystical experience, right, if you have this ascendant mystical experience, it didn't matter whether or not you sinned because your body was evil. Anything of substance was evil. All matter was evil. So what did the Gnostics do? They proclaimed about knowing about the truth of God, but their lives testified to something else. And John calls that out. We also see that if we live in the light of God, that divine illumination that as believers we have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, we have fellowship with the church, we have fellowship with one another, and what a most glorious truth, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all. If I would rewrite the Scriptures, all would be in caps, and it would be circled, and it would have all these markings. It cleanses us from all sin. I, I don't know if we can emphasize that enough. I don't know what your past is. You know what your past is. But regardless of your past, 
The blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse you from all sin. And that is a glorious truth. We saw that illustrated in the life of Jesus so many times. When they caught the woman in the act of adultery, the law would say that she and the partner, by the way, were to be stoned. And right, and, and here they are, they're all picking up rocks. And Jesus says, which one of you without sin will cast the first stone? Could you imagine that scene that the Gospels tell us? That one by one the stones dropped as Jesus wrote something in the ground. We don't know what he wrote. Scripture is not clear with that. Some people speculate that he wrote the Ten Commandments. I don't know. What I do know, it was a profound moment. And then as they all go away, he says to her, Daughter, is there no one else to condemn you? He didn't say go away and live your life the way you want to live your life. He said, "Go, neither do I. Go and sin no more. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. And the lesson is that there's a vast difference between what people profess and how one would walk, how one would conduct their life. And today we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 10. And John will continue in his very direct manner of speaking. And as I've been saying for the last few weeks, I urge you to look at the Scriptures from the inside out. And if you recall, I said to you, we have a tendency to look at the Scriptures from the outside in, looking in and saying, what's in it for me? How does this pertain to me? But what I call to you to do is to look at it from the inside out. Where is the glory of God in the Scriptures, and we see the glory of God, we see the glory of Christ. Let me tell you, all application will be added to us by virtue of the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to see today are two truths again that John is going to reiterate. He again is going to address the issue of professing versus possessing Christ. He's going to hit that. And number two, he's going to talk to the fact that it is God who is faithful and just. And just bear in mind one thing. Remember when we, 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 uh, we went through Hebrews, um, Isaiah chapter 6, and the, the seraphim cry out, holy, 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 right? And I shared with you that, you know, one view is that it's one holy for each member of the triunity of God. I said, but the other thing is in Jewish custom, it was very, very important that if you say something twice or three times, it meant that a very important point was coming, right? As Jesus would often do, verily, verily, I say unto you, that means listen up, something important is coming here. If you'll notice in 1 John, John is going to be redundant around certain points. And one of the points that he emphasizes twice is this whole aspect of professing versus possessing Christ. And I think that's one of the most critical points of 21st century Christians. Because it's very, very, very easy for somebody to say, I am a Christian. But their lives don't testify to the fact that Christ is ruling and reigning in their heart. So let's look at verses 8 through 10 of 1 John chapter 1. Verse 8 reads, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. As I previously stated in verses 6 and 7, John draws clear distinction between what an individual says or what an individual professes and what is God's truth. His premise here is that one can easily say that they do not sin. If that is the case, they deny the truth. They deny the gospel. The gospel is very clear in terms of man's sin. The gospel is very clear regarding original sin. The gospel is very clear concerning the depravity that is in the human heart. And in denying sin, they deny the gospel And his summation here 
it is evident that the truth is not in them. John knows firsthand that Christ died for sins. John knows of Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, but he was pierced through for whose transgressions? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. Paul makes this statement in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 12. What then are we any better? Not all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Greeks alike are all under sin. Get that. Jews and Greeks alike are all under sin. Verse 10, he says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No one seeks for God. For all have turned away, and together they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, no, not one. The evidence of God's truth in the life of the believer is the recognition of of one's own personal sin. Those of us that are in Christ, we know that at some point in our life, we had offended God and we were an offense to God. We know at some point in our life, we were at enmity with God. We were waging war against God. Those that are in Christ, Know that prior to coming to faith in Christ, that we were as the rest, guilty, guilty of sin. That's what I love, Paul, what he says in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. I love this. It, it, it resonates with me. It sticks with me. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with him by uh, together with Christ, for by grace we have been saved. Listen, this is the confession of the believer. The confession of the believer is, I once was lost, but now I'm found. You know, it really ticks me off. Can I give you a little tick-off thing, a complaint? The things that ticks me off is when I hear amazing grace being sung by sinful groups in some social or cultural thing that they're going through. They sing the words of grace and don't even know the words of grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I can see. John Wesley, in that great hymn, And Can It Be, he sums it up so greatly in the stanza where he says this, Longed my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound by sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused the quickening ray. I rose the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. If you notice the way Wesley writes that hymn, he writes the hymn as if he's in a dungeon, as he's fastened with chains, as he is in prison. That's how he describes the nature of sin. I was in a dungeon. I was chained. I had no hope. I could not go anywhere. But God in thine eye diffused the quickening ray that flamed my dungeon with light. And guess what happened? I didn't take the chains off. My chains fell off. My heart was free. And the response was, I rose, I went forth out of that dungeon, and I followed Christ. See, that's the believer. That is the believer. The believer's chains fall fall off 
God initiates salvation. God completes salvation. The believer is filled with the light of God. He's divine illumination. His eyes are open to the truth of the gospel. And he rises. He rises from spiritual death. And he goes forth. And he follows Christ. Listen. The gospel, I can't emphasize this enough, the gospel is truth. It is not a form of truth. The gospel is indeed truth. The truth of the gospel states that all people are lost in trespasses and sin, which is the reason God sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him would entrust themselves to him, would have eternal life. And that Christ paid the penalty for sin. And that Christ became that propitiation. His life, his sacrifice, satisfied the wrath of God. And Christ became that expiation. Christ carried our sins far, far, far away to be remembered no more. And that all who would come to him in faith and repentance, all who would come to him would be born again. They would be born again spiritually. They would have new life in Christ. New life in Christ. They will not have reformed life in Christ. The Christian life is not a 12-step program. It is not, you got to make amends with this one and you got to do this. The Christian life is transformation, regeneration through the working of the Holy Spirit. Sins forgiven. Power and dominion and enslavement from sin broken. And listen, one day we will be free from the presence of sin. There's a glorious truth. Our salvation is a multifaceted salvation. There is salvation past. God freed us from the penalty of sin through Jesus Christ. There is salvation present. Right? God is freeing us from the power of sin. That's our sanctification. When he freed us from the penalty, that's our justification. And then there's the glorious truth, our salvation future. God will indeed free us from the presence of sin, and that is our glorification. So here we see in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. Look at verse 9. What a glorious verse is in all of Scripture. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and right and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man. Now listen, this gets a little bit more complex than what it may appear here. Verse 9 pre- presents us with a number of compare and contrasts between verse 8 and between verse 9. John contrasts what people say about the truth. In verse 8, John makes this statement. I'm going to be flipping between verse 8 and 9, so I want you to follow me here. In verse 8, John makes this statement. If we say we have no sin. I want to say that again. If we say we have no sin. Note that in verse 9, that is contrasted with if we confess our sins. That word say, what that word say means to put an argument to rest. That's literally what it means. It means that you come to a conclusion, you're putting the argument to rest. So in verse 8, John is saying, if we say, if we have come to the conclusion that we have no sin, right, he is bringing out the statement, which is a statement that the Gnostics would make. I have no sin. 
I'm in that deeper ascendant. I, I, I've had that mystical experience. Listen, just because I go around sinning in the flesh, that doesn't mean I'm sinning against God. I'm in communion with God because I've achieved this particular thing. How great is that, right? The argument that we can make, right? Well, the body's sinful, so if I give in to sin, I'm just doing what the body says. It's just natural. But I have a spiritual thing going. You know how that's put today? God knows my heart. God knows my heart. You can't be so judgmental. God knows my heart. Now look at verse 9. In contrast to what we say, John says, if we confess our sins. And he says, the confession is a declaration. Now that word confess means to, it means to be in full agreement. To be in full agreement. It means to speak the same thing. So in verse 8, it is the individual saying, I have no sin. That's the logical conclusion I get to. In verse 9, it is the person saying, I confess my sins. I agree with what Jesus said. I agree with what the gospel says. Listen, this is the same verse used in Matthew 10.32 when Jesus made the statement, If everyone therefore who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before the Father. What's the intent there? What is the meaning there? Jesus is saying, look, if you say the same thing as me, if you come to the same conclusion of the gospel, if you're living out your life based on that conclusion, then guess what? You're going to be one I'm going to confess before the Father. You're going to be one I'm going to say the same thing about. We're in agreement. That's the whole point. Romans 10, it's the same word in Romans 10, 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe on your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. And notice, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. He's confessing. He's affirming the same thing. He's affirming the truths of the gospel. The heart believes, but the mouth confesses that particular truth. Here in verse 9, John uses the word to demonstrate that if we agree with the subject, now listen to me good, if we agree with the subject, what is the subject in that statement? The subject in that verse is sin. If we agree with sin, then the object of that verse, who is the object of that verse? It's Christ, it's God, is the one who can forgive sins. What's the point? Let's, let's net this out. The point is simply this. If we come to a place where we realize that we're at enmity against God, that we're in sin against God, and if we confess that, if we come to the place where we confess that, then what? Then results new life in Christ. We come with repentance. We come with confession. There's many times I speak to somebody and they say, oh, I'm... And, you know, I've been having this particular problem. And I say, okay, let's come together and pray. And I'll say, now I want you to say this sin. I want you to use just the blanket, Lord, forgive my sins. I want you to say this sin. And I do that for, their, for a reason, because there is a realization. When you say, Father, I have been in perpetual lust. Father, I have murder in my heart against a brother. Lord, I'm jealous of my neighbor and the things that my neighbor has. There's a realization that when you utter that and you hear it with your mind, the impact of that sin becomes much greater and produces repentance within the heart. Notice that there's a vast contrast from verse 8 where the confession was the individual stating they have no sin we find a second contrast in verse 9. And that second contrast between verse 8 and verse 9 is the we versus the he. Again, is the we versus the he. 
Verse 8, if we say we have no sin. What does man always try to do? What does human beings always try to do? They try to obliterate the Word of God with ration and reason. I don't want the Word of God. See, I realize I don't sin. That's what man says. Look at what's going on in our nation right, right now. Look at the litany of heinous sins that have become accepted by the culture. Why? Because multitudes of people have determined for themselves that's not a sin. It's not a sin. And those of us that know Christ, we look around and we go, oh my goodness, this is insanity. This is, this is craziness of the highest order. Verse 8 began with, if we say we have no sin, we lie, and the truth is not in us. Notice the we. We say it, we lie, the truth is not in us. I mentioned to you again that verse 9 begins with, if we... But here the we are the believers. How do we know? Because they confess a common confession regarding sin. The object changes from ourselves to God. From the mortal to the immortal. From the imperfect to the pure. And in so doing, we see God Virtue spread across. Look again at verse 9. If we confess our sins, there's the ownership. Now the shift. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice the following truths here and the following key words here. Number one. Notice, it is God who is faithful, not us. God is faithful. That word faithful means to be reliable, dependable. God is reliable. God is dependable. Here he is calling it out to those that may be following the Gnostic teaching that says you have it within you to discover God. Rather, he's saying if you confess your sin... It is God who is reliable. It is God who is faithful. Notice the second truth. It is God who is righteous or God who is just. And that word means right judicially. A declaration. How are we justified in Christ? Justification is a judicial declaration of God that he has declared you righteous. Notice here, it is God who is righteous. It is God who is just. Notice that when you are righteous and just and declared by God, guess what? You are approved of God. Notice the third thing. It is God who can cleanse. That's a great word in the Greek. It means to be made pure. It means to remove any intermingling of impurities. So what we're talking about is purity at 100%. Purity with no defect. It's God who is faithful. It is God who is just and righteous. It is God who can cleanse. And look at the fourth point. It is God who rids us of our unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is the opposite of justice it's the complete opposite of justice it is that which is contrary to god's righteous law what did we do that was contrary to god's righteous law you name it we did it we were born and conceived in sin the sin of adam was passed to all of us 
And then in rebellion, we lived out that sin. Notice that God does this all through. How? The blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. Once again, verse 9, He cleanses us. And here I go again. I would put all in big capital letters. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. John's whole point is that there is a major difference, a major difference between what people say versus what is the truth. The gospel is truth. Jesus said it in John 17, 3, sanctify them in truth for thy word is truth. Church, we've been given the truth of God's word. I don't know, honestly, listen, I don't know if we fully come to grips with that. In this day of cynicism and skepticism, do we fully realize we've been given the truth of God's Word? We've been given the truth of God's Word. And this Word, Jesus said, will sanctify the believer. God's Word declares that He is faithful He is the faithful judge, the holy God, the triumphant God is faithful, righteous, and just. Instead of John focusing on our deeds of righteousness, notice this. Instead of John focusing on our deeds of righteousness or mystical experience, as the Gnostics and the heretics would have preferred, John points the churches to a higher, nobler, mightier, and purer truth than our own righteousness. John points us to Christ, the righteous. I love this. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. You can turn there if you like. Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18. The writer of Hebrews writes this, speaking of Christ. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Notice, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Romans chapter 8, this is such a blessing, this verse to me. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Did you hear that? For what the law could not do, God did. God did. See, the unbeliever attempts to justify themselves solely by obliterating the truth of God. This is one of the primary reasons we see the world in such a, such a terrible condition as it is. But the believer is justified in Christ. And the believer is imparted Christ's righteousness. And so our standing is not in our keeping our deeds. And our standing is not in what we say, but our standing is completely and wholly in Christ, in Christ alone. And because of Christ's perfect righteousness, He is able to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of it. Not some of it, not most of it, not the majority of it, 
all unrighteousness. I talk a lot about looking at the text from the inside out, looking for the glory of God, the glory of Christ, and behold, it is staring us right here in our faith, face, our justification, our righteousness, our sanctification, our glorification is not manufactured by what we do. Rather, it is granted to all who come to repentance and faith. And I want you to note something. It is granted unmerited. That means we didn't deserve it. It is granted complete. It is granted perfect and pure. It is granted secured. Peter talks about it, that we have been, not been saved by perishable things, but imperishable things, that it is in heaven, protected for us by the very power of God. It is granted freely through Christ. It is granted intentionally through Christ. It is granted purposefully. It is granted lovingly. And here's the best part. It is granted for eternity. Not because of what we say or do, but because He is faithful and just. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Works are the evidence of the new life. Works do not produce the new life. Works are evidence of the new life. Praise God. John, as he did in verses 6 and 7, once again is contrasting between unbelief and belief, between bad doctrine and good doctrine. Gnostics believed that sinning did not matter, that while a person is trapped in an evil body, then giving in to what is evil is only natural. It is when one is free from evil, truly free from evil, truly spiritually, spiritual, then they can have that mystical experience. In this opening portion of John's gospel, of John's epistle, summarily dismisses the human attempt at righteousness. It dismisses the mystical experience and points only to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to share something with you right now. This heresy exists today in the church. This Gnostic heresy today exists in the evangelical church. There are many who take the grace of God for a license to sin. There are those who look at the grace of God and immediately assume I am forgiven, so my justification is in place. I, I came to Christ. He forgave all my sins. Jesus knows my heart, and I can do this or that. And you know what's amazing? Immediately they become lawyers with the Word of God. No offense, Daniel. They become lawyers with the Word of God. As a matter of fact, what they like to do is they become lawyers with the things that the Word of God does not say. I had a person come to me one time and said, why can't I smoke marijuana? God created it. It is organic. It is in the garden. He said, all things created are good. Why can't I smoke marijuana? It's not heroin. It's not crack cocaine. It's, you know, it's just natural. Gnostics held that belief that they can sin as much as they want. Listen, that was their belief. They could sin as much as they want. And today that heresy masquerades itself in those who sadly mistake salvation as being the ticket out of hell. See, I got my ticket punched. I'm not going to hell. So I could live the way I want to live. And they disregard the scriptural truths of anything that speaks to holiness and righteousness as legalism. You're legalistic. You're legalistic. There was an ancient heresy of that called antinomianism. And the antinomianism, uh, the folks who followed that believed that. All you have to do is focus on your justification. You've been made right in Christ. Therefore, if you live any other way you want, you can continue to do so. 
Listen, people who hold this heresy believe that they could drink to the point that they get drunk. They don't have a problem with drunkenness. They believe they could watch all manner of entertainment no matter how filthy the content. They believe they can use foul language consistently, that anything that calls a believer into holiness is legalism. All that matters is that God knows my heart. You've heard me say this. This isn't a new thing. God does indeed know your heart. He knows that it is wicked. He knows that it is deceitful above all else. And God will indeed render to all men according to their deeds. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. But the question for us is, do we have that kind of freedom in Christ? Let's settle this once and for all. Do we have that kind of freedom in Christ? Can we live as we please and still be a Christian? Listen, here's a bulletin. Scripture always equates that lifestyle as that of the unbeliever. It never equates that lifestyle with the believer. It's always that of the unbeliever. Remember what John said in, in 1 John 1, 6? We saw it last week. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, darkness, walk, walk is what? How one conducts their life. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie. And the truth is not in us. Could it be said about a Christian that the truth of God is not in them? That's not a Christian. That's an unbeliever. Listen, notice what Jude says in Jude 1.4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. You know that word licentiousness? Old English word, right? That means any person who rejects restraint. They reject restraint and they just live lawlessly. Notice what Jude said. They reject the law of God, and they turn the grace of Jesus Christ into licentiousness. I'm going to live any way I want. I'm going to have no restraints against me. This is loose living. To be kind. This is loose living. Taking everything to excess. Listen, there are many other verses that condemn such a thought process, but I'm going to give you Galatians 15. Just turn to Galatians, 15, uh, Galatians 5, verses 19 through. How come nobody said, Galatians 15, Pastor, you're out of your mind? Everybody's like, oh, where's Galatians 15 over here? Where's Galatians? Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. I just want to show you this. Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. You probably have come across this, but I want to point out a few things here. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now I want to show you something here. You're going to notice that the sins are broken into three categories. There's sexual impurity. Sexual immorality are the first three. Immorality, impurity, sensuality. That word immorality in the Greek is the Greek word porneia. What English word can you think of that is rooted from porneia? It talks about base things. It talks about immoral things. Here are the sexual sins. Immorality, porneia, impurity, sensuality. These are the group of sins. These are the first sins that he leads off with. He goes into sins of worship, religious sins. Notice the religious sins. 
idolatry. We know what idolatry is, right? Anything we worship apart from God. Idolatry. Sorcery. Here's an interesting word. The Greek word, pharmakia. What English word do you get from pharmakia? Pharmacy. What's pharmacy have to do with? Drugs. What does pharmakia mean? Those that are enchanted with drugs. That's what it means. Why is that there? Because in the pagan cultures, in the pagan religions, drinking and drugs were designed to alter your state of worship. They believed that when you were drunk or you were enchanted with drugs, drugs is not a new thing, right? We all thought it's a new thing. No, it goes back to them. They would take drugs. They would do mixtures to get themselves high. And while they were high, they would have these visions and they would attribute them to their pagan gods. Notice that drug use here is a sin of worship. Look what else he goes on to say. He goes, idolatry, sorcery. And then he talks about the sins of people, sins against others. Enmity, what's that? That's warring against another person, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness. And there's another word that follows drunkenness, carousings. You know what carousings is? That means you're reveling. It's like a, the original word is like a village festival. So you're reveling, you're partying in your drunkenness and in your lewdness. People say today, oh, we're going to go bar crawling. And go from bar to bar to bar to bar to bar until you get really smashed. I've met many people who profess themselves to be a Christian who see absolutely nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. Now notice what Paul says at the end of this. Things like these, of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you, so things like these, which I already warned you about, but notice the end. That those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That Gnostic heresy is still alive today. Antinomianism is still alive today. People who talk about the liberty that they have in Christ because their sins are forgiven that the freedom to live any way they want. And yet John is writing in the first century, toward the end of the first century, he says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. We must walk, conduct our lives as he is in the light. And the way we're able to do that is through the dwelling, abiding Holy Spirit, who will always testify to the glory of God. It doesn't mean that Christians don't stumble and fall. It doesn't mean that Christians live sinless, perfect lives. That's not what we're going for. What it does mean is that the abiding Holy Spirit will produce in us deeds of righteousness that will point men and women to Christ and say, that man, that woman walks with Christ. Go back to 1 John, verse 10, and with this we're going to close. John ends almost as he started in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. John seals the deal with a simple, direct statement. Denying sin is evidence that the truth is not in us. So what's the big deal? Why should we care? 
in the first 10 verses of this epistle, John lays out the following critical points to the churches in Asia. Number one, verses one through four, John defends the personhood of Jesus Christ and John defends the gospel. Verses five through seven, John lays out the standard for the church, that God is light and in him is no impurity, that only Jesus Christ can cleanse us from sin, that there is a danger between what one says and how one lives. In verses eight through 10, John continues on the same thing of professing versus possessing Christ. But he points us yet again that it is God who is indeed faithful and just, the one who cleanses us from unrighteousness. The point being is God is righteousness. In God there is righteousness, and that righteousness is imparted to the believer through the blood of his Son, Jesus Christ. And that righteousness is evident in the believer, in Jesus Christ. How? Because if we walk in the light. This is the truth of the gospel. And this is what John is embarking on in this great epistle. Now the question for us to ask is, how do we, those who profess the name of Jesus Christ, measure up to that standard? That's the question. Do we walk in the light as he is in the light? Do we have fellowship with one another? And do we know that God is indeed faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from moral and righteousness? If not, we can know that by coming to Christ in repentance and faith. Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as your fathers did in the wilderness. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. God forbid that that would be said about any of us here. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.